Good afternoon, this is Gary Cavanagh here on TRSI. I am here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Apologies for the show not turning up on Sunday. Apparently, uh, my lack of internet and constant usage of a phone hotspot to do these shows pushed me over the fair usage limit. So we did the show and then I, uh, I found my phone company would not allow me to upload or download any of the files. For the show. Is that what happened? Yes, that's that's what happened, Michael. I basically sat here unable to do anything. <laughs> but we did record the whole show. <laughs> I wondered. I thought it was... Oh, boy, you see, I knew... I should have known. Because if it had been something I had done... Because I did think, I wonder, fuck, did I do something? But it didn't go up. I thought it must have been me. But then I thought, no, it can't have been me. Because if it was me, he would have been back onto me. For a good <laughs> half hour of gloat. And patronise me about how old and decrepit I am, and I haven't managed to work out how to use Skype yet. Never occurred to that. <laughs> so they let you do all that, and then you couldn't upload it. <laughs> couldn't do it, yeah. Yeah, let me use Skype to, to to record the show, but then just wouldn't do anything with the files. It was so restricted, the downloads and uploads just kept failing. Uh, it turns out when they say you breach their fair usage policy and they're going to restrict you, they mean it. But not on everything. No, not no. In fact, that would be better if it was total, in a sense. Yeah. It, but it's tantalisingly not. Yeah, because then we wouldn't have spent hours looking at what we should talk about and recording it. <laughs> I do actually have internet now. To what? Yeah, I got I got internet. They told me last week it could be up to another month. And I told them that that was too long. And I was thinking I would just cancel it. But to give me the evening, because I wanted to see if I could get it anywhere else quicker. I didn't want to cancel and then find out everywhere else is a four-month waiting period. And that was at the end of the workday, Michael. And when I woke up the next morning, someone had put across the cable I had been waiting to be run across that road for about a month. They came during the night. I remember you told me that ESB came like thieves of the night and put the cable across the road. So the cable was there, and then the internet people came along and filled up the cable with internet. They did, yes. Uh, although when I called them, and I was like, well, the cord is there, they went, is it though? And I went, well, I'm I'm looking at it. Seems unlikely. And I said, well, the ESP hasn't said that they put it out. And yes, there is clearly a cable hanging from my roof. And then they said, there's a pause, and I went, it's not impossible that the ESP did put it up, and then didn't tell us. I'm like, you say that with the tone of a man who's had this happen to you before. But anyway, yeah, we got internet. They sent around a single man to drill through what I found out, and he came over, are very difficult to drill through walls. They are solid stone, I believe. Um, I've heard drills struggle to cut through things. I've heard drills get to the point where the engine is going to die. I have never heard a drill make the sort of sounds that this thing was making. I legitimately feared the engine was going to explode. And then I said, like, that'll happen. It'll take this man's hands clean off. And then they're going to use that as an excuse to not give me internet for more weeks. Weeks and weeks, yeah. And that's the tragedy. That's the tragedy. Yeah, the, there's a noise that these, when they're going to that really, really hard rock, it's when it goes, the, the note has gone from well beyond baritone all the way up to soprano. And it's gone into this very high pitch, pitch, pitch. And you think, oh, that's not good. That that motor is only going to last another minute, minute and a half at that kind of resonance before we hear splintering and splattering of, of bones. And as you say, the prospect of Wi-Fi disappeared. However, that did not happen. No, I now have Wi-Fi. We can now upload as full. 
we can now even uh, record. So now I think all that's left in this room is to get a little bit of sound insulation into it. And I will have a perfectly functional space that is still nowhere, nowhere near as good as the professional quality studio we have access to but cannot use due to the end tail of the pandemic. Although I think I've gotten used to not actually having to go up there. Very far away. It is very far away. So, after that long, long discussion of the difficulties of my life, but my eventual triumph. Yes. We have a couple of things to go through. I wanted to talk about the press ombudsman. It came back with a uh, finding there in relation to the Irish Freedom Party and the journal.ie, which hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but I actually think is, is quite important. Um, to the extent that anything the press ombudsman says is quite important. But it's a nice little window into official Ireland. So we will touch on uh, that. There's a couple of things, just a general summary, Michael, that I have um, been trying to chase up for the last while. I always have a great number of FOIs in with various government bodies. And most FOIs, you'll get them back, but they'll be redacted or there'll be issues with them. But it's a general process, even if you... Don't get back what you want. Mm -hmm. But there's two subjects I've been trying to get information on in the last while that I found it very difficult to get information on. And in one case, I've had to appeal a decision to the Office of the Information Commissioner, who are affected. Well, they do many things. But one of the things they do is oversee FOIs. And a decision by the OIC is legally binding. I mean, you can go to the High Court if you want to. And people have done that to appeal it. But it's generally the end of the road for most things. And the issues I've had uh, difficulty with. Yes. I've been asking the Department of Health and the HSE about uh, Kinzen and their anti-information misinformation work. I was meant to receive that last week. I haven't received it to date. I'm told I will receive it presently, but I'm very curious when I get back. So I might get that back today, in which case we'll probably have some stories about Kinzen over the next while, assuming there's anything decent in it. There was FOIs I sent in to the Rotunda Hospital about that program they did uh, that caused a very predictable backlash when it turned out they hadn't been letting partners in when their wives were giving birth, uh, but had let a full television crew in. So I asked them for any conversations they'd had with the um, production team, any safety reviews they'd carried out, all the sort of things that you would absolutely expect a hospital who is actively uh, banning certain people from attending for safety concerns because of a transmissible disease, to have undertaken, Michael. Well, even if they weren't, you'd expect them to have done it. I mean, in, in what, in, even, in, even outside of a pandemic, if you're having a bunch of people coming around a hospital with cameras and shit, you would have imagined that they would have done some kind of a safety analysis anyway. So it will be curious to see what they did do. So they, they did get back to me. I think they were late. I can't remember, but I think they were late. And they came back with, I think, two documents, which were basically uh, like short documents from the production team that shot it about how they should safely go around the set. And I got back in touch with them and I said, should I take it from you only sending me these two documents that the hospital actually undertook nothing about this, that there were no safety reviews, there was nothing of the sort, and there was no internal communication about these people coming in. And they said they would get back to me. And that was about two weeks ago. So I'm probably going to have to assume that is what's called a deemed refusal, which is where you put in an FOI and someone just doesn't respond to you. Because I don't think it's practical that those are the only communications sent. So I suspect, Michael, 
They have sent me information so they don't have to refuse it, but avoided actually sending anything useful. So that might have to go to the OIC. But the one that I particularly wanted to talk about, because it's it's impressively ballsy, I think, is RTE. RTE are a member of a group called Cover and Climate Now, which again is an advocacy group dedicated to changing how the media talks about climate change. It is of there are many people in this group, ranging from high quality newspapers like The Guardian, and The Guardian, despite the fact it has a very obvious political slant, a lot of their reporting is quite good. Their opinion pages are mental, but some of their reporting is quite good, and they can occasionally surprise you. It's, I think it's just, without getting distracted, slightly sad and slightly symptomatic of the nature of the beast. There were 10 years, people might be surprised, for around 10 years of my life I used to read The Guardian every day, and I did tend to avoid George Monbiot and the... Uh, Polly Toynbee in the... But other than that, I it wasn't my politics, but Simon Hoggard was a fantastic parliamentary sketch writer, and they had lots of interesting stuff, and it was good reporting. It, it was very well written. If nothing else, The Guardian was really, really well written. But you know the thing is, Gary, once the, the ideological poison gets in, and that division between news reporting and opinion writing gets increasingly blurred. We've seen this with the Irish Times, where trying to distinguish between news and opinion has got harder and harder, but The Guardian is a much bigger old kind of an operation. It lasted, took longer, but oh, by around 2005, 2010, it was already, it was it was not the paper it, it had been. Hey, it's still, <laughs> it is still leagues and leagues and leagues ahead of anything we have here. Uh, but still, it's kind of sad. Because I, I would rate it very, very highly. Not my politics at all, but as a newspaper, as a piece of writing. But the writing is almost the first thing to go when it's sacrificed on the uh, on the altar of advocacy politics. But there you go. So it, this, is, this, you're, this is basically an, a climate advocacy group, though, isn't it, Gary? It is, but it, it's of a very particular type. It offers to train journalists and provide experts to programmes. And basically getting uh, journalists to talk about climate in a very particular way. And they have a lot of information on this, but they push particular angles like saying that you should never undermine or mock or speak disparagingly of any climate group, regardless of its actions. So things like Extinction Rebellion, if they do something that's kind of silly, don't ever uh, speak negatively of it because that might colour people's view on climate change. So while you do have uh, papers like The Guardian inside it, you have lots of papers. Orchie was the only state organisation I could find that had joined it. And that might be explained by the fact that it is very clearly an advocacy group. And some of the world's largest newspapers didn't go into it because it was clearly an advocacy group and they are newspapers. Yeah, it's inappropriate. It's just, it is particularly inappropriate that a state broadcaster, which in theory would be the last resort for uh, disinterested, impartial reporting, should be found. And in fact, the, 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 the very opposite of mere advocacy. Do we have, a, sorry to distract you, Gary, but do we have an idea who funds this? It's not important. Like, I mean, the ideas are either good or bad ideas. There is, it doesn't matter it, uh, who funds them in a, in a sense. I'm just curious. And I'm sure that in the United States, between the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller and Bill Gates and Hewlett-Packard and Warren Buffett, etc., 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 
there are many, many billionaires in the United States who are willing to give many, many millions and billions to the uh, task of saving the planet. So we've wanted to know about RTE and their relationship with this advocacy group and what, I mean, is, do we know have RTE journalists been trained or received training? Have they changed editorial policy on the basis of the agreement or the, the manifesto as it were? What do we know about the relationship between RTE and this group? That's that's what I wanted to find out. What is the relationship there? What are RTE journalists being told? We know that covering climate now has very particular ideas of how you should cover climate and how you should treat people on different sides of it. And I also want to know, is that impacting on things like a carbon tax? We saw the recent polls that said carbon taxes are deeply unpopular. And we've been making the argument for a good while that carbon taxes are not just regressive, but have to be regressive in order to work. And stuff like that is very interesting because it's all very well to say that we're going to cover climate in this way. But what does that mean when you're talking about things, you know, at the margins, like like uh, political views on different parties or whether or not something works? And I wanted to partially know that and partially just see what is the level of engagement here. But there's an interesting thing about RTE and FOIs, Michael. RTE comes under the FOI Act, but anything related to program functions is uh, is outside the Act. So that's done, I think, so that if there was a journalistic source, RTE could not be forced to disclose it. Sure. It doesn't seem like a terribly relevant cutout, as you could always find a reason not to disclose those sources anyway. Because, I mean, the FOI Act, you could drive a bus through it if you really wanted. Yes. But here's the interesting thing. RTE are not saying that some of their work with Covering Climate Now comes under that provision. RTE are saying that every correspondence they have ever had with Covering Climate <laughs> Now comes under that correspondence, which in a way is, is saying that, well, everything we've done with Climate Now has uh, impacted on how we cover things. Yes. But RTE's argument to me was that we're the courts have found that we can take a broad interpretation of this, and we are going to do so. Yeah, this isn't so much broad as in blanket this is just something you throw over everything it does seem like if you accepted this principle that because some of what they do might impact on programming everything could impact on programming that RTE could simply refuse to release anything ever well maybe as the law is written as it stands maybe this is in fact the case however it seems that if as stated this would effectively mean that RTE was beyond the remit of the Freedom of Information Act, if that was to be the case. Because they could just, well, anything which touches on the nature of program or program production is is protected. And I, I, I don't think you have to play seven degrees of Kevin Bacon to get from pretty well anything in RTE to a production in RTE. Surely that's a fairly short walk and not a difficult line to draw. That, that that can't be a tenable position, Gary. I mean, I'm not saying it's not right, but it can't. it's not tenable, shall we say, from the point of view of democratic responsibility, accountability. And then they pointed out that the Information Commissioner had previously brought them to court, and the court had said that uh, the exemptions provided in the Act should be viewed as uh, extensively as possible, and the areas subject to FOI should be viewed as narrowly as possible. Why? Sorry, there's no reason why you should be able to answer that. I just, that's off 
why a court would come to that conclusion, particularly regarding FOIs. That's a peculiarly bureaucratic, bureaucratic vision of the law, that the purpose of the law should be deemed to be as narrow as possible to grant the greatest leeway and protection to bureaucrats as possible. Anyway. I did also find quite interesting that part of the response I got explains things I didn't ask for. Like they say, as part of our commitment to environmental reporting, Orti became a partner covering climate now. That's not relevant to what I asked. I don't care. Also, if that's the case, send me the documents that show that. But anyway, they said that the sole purpose of covering climate now is to <laughs> is to encourage and improve climate reporting. And so the sole purpose of the initiative relates to reportage, and therefore they don't have to give me anything. <laughs> That's a neat piece of rationalisation, isn't it? It is. And I basically, I appealed this internally. They also came back to me late on that. And then I sent it to the OIC and said, it seems ridiculous that everything would fall under these options, considering there's other areas where you can apply for it and they tend to be you know administrative training so for them to have never exchanged anything that could come outside it would be deeply suspicious mm. now there are as i said there are exceptions for sources and anything that leads to an editorial decision so that's what they'll claim and if yeah, the oic may come back and say yeah we don't like it but that's the uh, that's what the high court found and they'd be reasonable in the basis is if they're ad this if they have bought into advocacy, well then the very fact that they've signed up to this, they share the values of this group means that their editorial line is affected. Why else would you sign up to them? You know, unless you're going to change your editorial line or have your editorial line in some say sense informed by this group. And so I think there wouldn't be any point in it unless it did change your editorial position. No, and, and I and uh, Ben Scallon published a piece on this, I think last year, looking at some of what the group says and, uh, and what it says reporters should do. And it's very broad, and it talks a lot about presenting issues in such a way to move the public in a particular direction, including in how you treat politicians coming from different approaches. So if you have, let's say they do related to carbon taxes and you have a politician on about carbon taxes who's against it. Well, Covering Climate Now says you should actively make that politician look as bad as possible in order to dissuade people from believing what he's saying. It would absolutely appear that there is an influence here and Orchie just doesn't want to reveal anything about it. I wonder, does Sinn Féin, which opposes carbon taxes, know about for example, that particular example and Ortiz's relationship with this advocacy group and how they might themselves see the way this Ortiz is treating uh, people from Sinn Féin who uh, oppose carbon taxes on their television programmes. I think that might be an interesting thing to ask Sinn Féin. But also, if they have taken those, those uh, points from Covering Climate Now to heart and they're acting to implement them. If you go onto an RTA program and you have a position on climate change that they don't like, and Covering Climate Now encourages you to take the broadest possible reading of yes. a climate change policy because they say everything should be related to climate change. Yes. You would expect then that whoever is handling that RTA debate, whatever reporter is there, is not attempting to be fair to you, but is rather going to attempt 
to subtly undermine you over the course of the debate. And if you introduce that concept into the debate, well, Orchie is no longer neutral, and Orchie is no longer trustworthy. So that, I think, is why major newspapers refuse to get involved in covering climate now, because they understand that you can damage yourself through association with it. But Horty doesn't give a shit. What are you going to do? Exactly. What are you going to do except take away, abolish the license fee and let them go private? Or do what I have been advocating for some time, Gary, now, which is uh, knock, it, knock down Donnybrook and build... Europe's largest duck pond. What I did, what I was actually kind of impressed by, just just the ballsiness of it, is the thing you can get called a schedule of documents. And what a schedule of documents is, it's considered best practice. You don't technically have to do it, though. Or at least I don't think you have to do it. I must actually check that. But what it is, if you put in an FOI and it gets refused or partially refused, you ask for the schedule of documents. And that is every document they considered as part of your application. Basically, everything they considered giving to you, regardless of whether or not they did in the end. And it can actually be very, very informative. Because otherwise, you just get something basically saying you've got nothing. But if you get the schedule, you can kind of look at it, and you're like, oh, that's what happened. Because you can see the dates, and you can see stuff like that. Mm-hmm. When I asked for the schedule from RTE, they explained to me very uh, pleasantly, but also in much the same fashion you would to a child who is just slightly slower than you had expected. Yeah. That because of the exclusions under the Act, it was not that there was a schedule. It was that they fell so clearly under this Act that no schedule had been gathered to begin with. So Orty's basic point is, we so clearly do not have to give you this that we're not even going to look to make sure that we don't need to give you this. You see, I can see from one perspective why you would want to give the largest news gathering, reporting, journalistic organisation in the country a certain amount of protection from people digging in around it. And that you might perceive that the single biggest threat would be not from citizens privately, but from politicians, political groups, or indeed the government using the capacity they have to to dig around and to cause problems. So you want to go, the problem is when the threat does not come from, shall we say, the state apparatus, because in RTE has, <laughs> it's not, as, you know, it's not, there, in nature there are, normally you would say two kinds of relationships between two separate organ, or organisms. You have the symbiotic relationship, where it's a positive relationship on both sides, and there's a parasitic relationship, where one organism lives upon another. I think RTE has gone beyond that, in that as it has inserted itself further and further up the digestive tract of the body politic, starting not at the mouth but at the rectum, that it has now almost fused itself into that political, governmental body there that you can't really distinguish the two so now the threat is not perceived as being coming from big powerful state but rather from citizens and troublemakers like you people doing the wrong things and asking the wrong questions exactly and the problem is what those protections that had been imagined would protect RT from the uh, abuse of power of big government are, are now actually being used to defend it and its collusion with the power of the state and of political 
uh, uh, institutions. And that's one of those good old fashioned ironies, Gary, that we all enjoy so much. There you go. Still, keep on fighting the good fight. And if not, there's always the petrol bombs. I, I think it would just be legitimately interesting to see how deeply they're involved, because it's not just that these people suggest experts for you or, you know, will keep you informed about climate news. The training they offer and some of the advice they give is absolutely unreconcilable with any attempt to be a trustworthy broadcaster, because they're telling you to do things like present people in the worst possible light. Mm hmm. It's ludicrous that Orty got involved because there is a massive risk of reputational harm. But then again, this is Ireland, and who's going to ask about it? I can, I can see that there is a risk of harm, Gary. Reputational harm, not so much. Let's face it. The people who like Orty will not find that it's reputational damaged by this. And for the rest of us, Orty has no reputation to damage anymore anyway. Even internally. Seriously, internally, I am sure that there are some old-fashioned old-fashioned hippies left in RTE who have a vague memory of what journalism used to be and don't like this kind of... Even if they're madly on board with all the climate stuff, they just won't like... There have to be people left in RTE that just feel a little bit dirty a little bit compromised, a little bit this isn't what supposed to be, we're supposed to be doing. Also, I would make the point that the only reason we know there's a connection here is because they were kind enough to tell people there was a connection here. <laughs> yeah. And if they're going to say that they have to release nothing on their FOIs, there's no obligation on them to tell people that they're involved with groups similar to this in other areas. So even if you support them getting in with this group, there's nothing stopping them once the principle is accepted from getting in with any group, depending on what RTE or, well, you know, particular people within RTE want to do at any time. And it does not end well. It ends not well, Gary. It ends not well at all. I know, we've talked about misinformation a lot on this show, Michael, and the growing complaints from politicians and mainstream media about misinformation. And the point I would make, I, I have made, and I would like to make again, is the best way to counter misinformation is to act in a trustworthy fashion. And this is not that. You are creating a stick for people to beat you with as soon as people start noticing it. Yes, this is go by the wallism, as once upon a time would have been understood. This is not this is not the act of the decent, upstanding, transparent organization that we all know that RTE longs to be. So on organizations not acting in a fashion which maintains trust in them. The press ombudsman. Look, oh yeah. The press ombudsman has some views they want you to know about. And on one hand, the press ombudsman is utterly unimportant, has basically no power, and is largely a meaningless entity designed to give people a feeling that they have recourse. Is basically that they, they receive complaints from members of the public, generally members of the public who don't have the resources or just don't want the hassle of sending a legal letter. And so the press council tends to be, or the press ombudsman tends to be used by particular sorts of people or people who just don't want to start a legal issue. Mm -hmm. uh, if you do have the resources, I would advise you to go down that route because you are far more likely to get a positive outcome if you do. And basically in Ireland, the press council of Ireland have a code of practice. And you can sign on to the code of practice 
And if you are a media entity and you are sued, the fact you adhere to the code of practice can lead to you getting off slightly more lightly. So there is an advantage if you are in the media. But if you've signed up to it, then someone can complain against you to the ombudsman. And that's what happened here. So there is, I suppose, a point to make first that uh, we talked before about access to justice. And it's all very well and good saying there are laws. But if it's impossible for anyone to ever bring a court case in order to examine those laws because the cost is simply so high, then functionally the laws only exist at the government's discretion. Correct. And the press ombudsman, I think, fills roughly the same function. It's there because defamation is very expensive and no one really wants to do it if they don't have to, unless you have sufficient money to use it as a weapon, in which case you don't go hog wild. If it was easier to go through defamation proceedings, if the costs were lower, the awards were lower, legal fees were not what they were, no one would use the press ombudsman. So its existence largely demonstrates that defamation law does not work in this country, either for those who were sued or for those who have had something said about them that they believe to be damaging. So that's my general take on the office. I think its existence is proof of failure. But Herman Kelly, who is the leader of the Irish Freedom Party, lodged a complaint against the journal on the grounds of principle one of the code of practice, which is truth and accuracy. And the journal had called the Irish Freedom Party far right. And Herman basically said, we're not far right, and we would like you to investigate this and get them to explain how they feel justified in calling us far right. Or to stop calling us far right to apologise. Yeah, so they didn't ask for money. Uh, The IFP didn't ask for money. They didn't ask for anything other than an apology. Press Ombudsman came back and said it was perfectly acceptable for the journal to call the Irish Freedom Party far right. What I wanted to talk about was not the finding, because I don't actually think it matters if they're right or wrong in this case. What I think matters is the process and and the, the process and the fact that their process seems to be basically non-existent. So the Ombudsman considered this and he came back and he said it was yeah, perfectly fine to call the Irish Freedom Party far right. What he didn't attempt to do was to determine if calling the Irish Freedom Party far right was true or accurate. Now, Michael, I may not be this country's finest legal mind, but I feel if someone asks you to examine if an entity has breached the principle of uh, accuracy and truth, you should probably do that. So, no, hold on, hold on, just before you go. They didn't uh, try to establish the accuracy of the truth of the statement, but they did say that it was okay to call the Freedom Party far right. So, can you explain to me on what basis it was okay to call them far right? He said that calling something far right was a broad sweep term, Michael, rather than exact definition. And that, as in the journal's case, it came from a political reporter, that meant it was acceptable given the range of policies promoted by the party and by the causes party members have been associated with. What he didn't say, Michael, was what those policies might be, or what those causes might be, or how the fact a member was involved with a cause outside the party indicated something about the internal ideological structure of the party. Hmm. But he basically said, looking at the IFP, yeah, it's fine to say they're far right. Now I'm just going to make some statements which I'm not going to explain or back up at all. Good day to you. You see, I mean, I'm... Partly not 
100% unsympathetic to anybody asked this question because this part which says, you know what, at that level, it is opinion ultimately. Um, but then again, to be called far right is not really a, a neutral descriptor. Even in the sense to be called far left, I would say carries less negative emotion. I would call it that and simply that. Ne it carries less negative emotion with it than to be called far right. I, I imagine we've asked this question here before, Gary, just for the sake of it. What would make somebody or make an, uh, an organization far right? What would the characteristics be that you would associate with them that would make them far right as opposed to simply right wing or centre right? I mean, there are many definitions you can go with, which is part of what the ombudsman should have done. They should have asked the journal what definition they use. And then they should have said, is that a, you know, a legitimate definition? Because there are descriptions that either a far right or a far left political entity is one which rejects the democratic process. Okay, yeah. Fundament yeah fundamental suspicion of the the of the the notion of liberal democracy okay yeah that's but there are, there are other definitions which focus on other things and yeah he's right that there are many definitions but they are definitions the words still have meaning to say that they are broad sweep terms and then not even ask the journal what they meant seems to me to just not be what a serious entity should do if it's asked to find out if what was said was true and accurate. The journal, by the way, Michael, the journal provided no evidence or explanation. They simply said it's a useful political definition to differentiate the policies of different parties in Ireland. I'm happy that we use the term correctly in this article. That's all the journal said. And it doesn't look like the ombudsman went back to them with any questions. The point you make there is, is fair and reasonable from the from the point of the journal, that they should at least be asked to give clarification on what they mean by far right, because at least that will give us a sense of where along the spectrum or the continuum the journal finds itself, and that will mean that the shall we say the readers of the journal can then position themselves uh, along that, so they can understand what the perspective that the the, the journal has. It's just, it's, it is too toxic a term in most of polite drawing room politics in Europe, far right. It's too toxic that you can just bandy it around willy nilly. It is effectively a term of abuse. It is, but I think more relevant than that is it can be and has been used as a delegitimization tactic by people who have conceptions of the far right that are broadly at odds with how it's commonly understood, perhaps far broader understandings of it, or who simply use it because they know it smears. Here's exactly what the Ombudsman said, Michael. He said, The use of the epithet far right to describe the Irish Freedom Party is, in my views, not a breach of principle one, which is truth and accuracy. It is a broad sweep term which, coming from a political reporter expressing his or her political judgment, seems acceptable given the range of policies promoted by the party and by the causes party members have been associated with. Which is utterly irrelevant, by the way, unless they're associated with those causes in some way in the advancement of the party or in some official capacity of the party. What they want to do in their private lives is 
nothing to do with the party because the party can't control that. The focus of the article that led to this complaint was not an analysis of the ideology of the Irish Freedom Party. It was about an individual who'd been associated with the party. In these circumstances, the single reference to the party as far right was not a breach of principle one. Now that last point, the focus of the article was not the ideology of the Freedom Irish Freedom Party. A direct reading of that seems to say it is fair to say that someone is a political ideology which they may not be as long as it is incidental to the piece you are writing. That is a bizarre statement. That's crap. And then to say it's acceptable coming from a political reporter expressing his or her political judgment. You were meant to determine whether this was true and accurate, not if it was fair for a political reporter to say that this is their view. The interesting thing about that, Michael, is that the finding of the Ombudsman seems to directly contradict Principle 2 of the Code of Practice, particularly Section 2.2. Comment, conjecture, rumour, and unconfirmed reports shall not be reported as if they are fact. But that's exactly what the Ombudsman is saying is fine in this instance. Where I think it goes from not being right or wrong, but just not being a serious piece of work, is if, if I were to say... I think you're a racist because of things you've said. And write a report that said that, but did not detail what you had said. How is that a serious piece of work? It's all I have done is made a defamatory insinuation that you have acted in unacceptable ways, in my view, and then given no information that other people could use to look at and say, okay, I think you're right or you're wrong. Or, you know, maybe you've misread this. You've made absolutely no even attempt to substantiate the claim that you're making. But, you know, there doesn't seem to be any awareness that there might be a need to substantiate such a claim. This whole, the use is fair in my view, but no explanation of how that view was arrived at. Nothing there. And the problem there is, if it's the case that the ombudsman can simply say, well, this is what I think, so this is how the principles will be done, with no explanation, well, then you can't consider the ombudsman to be fair and unbiased. Because their points are coming from their professional or uh, personal view mm. with no information given that shows that they're not. So why would you trust the press ombudsman to be fair to you if he's willing to do this and say, well, actually, you can call someone fair, right? Because I, you know, I just, I feel, Michael, I feel that that is the appropriate term. And we're just going to have to live with that. And I'm going to, and then not only do you do that, you release a report which doesn't even find that there was no breach but rather explicitly says it's fine, it's acceptable to call the party far right. And that's going to be used by people to justify calling the party far right. And you had to have known that. And you still don't do the basic level of work. Like, he doesn't seem to have done anything. Just felt how he felt and then went, that's good enough. Yeah, well, we don't like those people, do we? And none of the people that we know and like, like those people. And in fact, none of the people that we might even end up having dinner with on a Friday or a Saturday night, like or approve of any of those people. So, you know, first of all, they probably are far right. And if they're not, well, it's as near as makes no difference. And most importantly, our job is to protect the great unwashed, the the hoi polloi, the proles out there from people like this. So we want to put up big red banners, big red signs saying danger, danger, poison, poison. Do not approach. So stay away from these people because ultimately 
That's what this is, isn't it, Gary? This is a sticker that they want to put on the Freedom Party and people like them to say these are bad. This is bad. This is bad juju. This will make you sick if you eat it. It's not. It's not an analysis. It's just a warning sign. I think largely, yeah, you're right on this. This is just they're disreputable people. Therefore, it's fair to say whatever the hell you want about it. And if they've got a real issue with it, bring it to the courts. Yeah. Of course, now if you bring it to the courts, the journal would bring up this as evidence that it was perfectly fair for them to say. Look, we went to the ombudsman and the ombudsman says it's all perfectly fine. I, I would very much doubt, Michael, if the journal... If we were to take some of the principles in this about broad sweep terms and how it's fine as long as it's a political reporter expressing his or her political judgment and refer to the journal in relation to some of their activity, like accepting massive amounts of money from Europe and the impact that might have on editorial independence and terms like, you know, shill might be thrown around, Michael. Terms like that. (laughs) I don't think the journal would think that was a legitimate usage. Um, I think that's very probably true. And that's why we would never, ever imply such a thing. No, nor would we point out that the fact that the Irish Freedom Party is one of the only anti-EU parties in the country, and the journal is again accepting massive amounts of money from them, indicates there could be any incentive on the journal parts to attack the IFP. Well, you know, the old, what the cliche quote in these circumstances was, why would anybody bribe an English journalist when, when... when unbribed we see what they will already do, I don't think it would be necessary for the journal to have any connection with anybody. First of all, to be go to go super defensive of anything which is European, and secondly, to have a good kicking at the Irish Freedom Party. Uh, I think that this is the kind of thing that they would enjoy to do, even free gratis, and indeed free gratis. But it's not good journalism, and it's not. And not that no, we should observe it even. Or should we observe, or should we have to? No, we shouldn't, but I will anyway. That neither of us are particularly carrying a torch for the Irish Freedom Party, nor should any of this be taken as an endorsement of the Irish Freedom Party. But rather, simply say, lads, if, you, if you're a, a, a major, and the journal is a significant presence in the Irish news market, then it kind of would be good if you used, used descriptors of political parties which are true and fair and accurate and if you don't it would be reassuring if the uh, the ombudsman would actually say no you can't use fair use language which is not fair and accurate it's rather it would be disappointing when he doesn't do that and doesn't even explain why it's okay to use language which is not fair and accurate or to explain why the language is indeed truthful and accurate but he fails to do that so we're left with fundamentally nothing except that oh well it's a political piece and it's a political journalist and you can say whatever you feel that does kind of seem to be what he's saying that as long as a political journalist feels that you know it's a fair cop then say what you want and it's not a breach of truth and accuracy which is a very interesting reading into the term truth and accuracy well, you know, okay, here's 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 another possibility, Gary. Maybe the Ombudsman is a thoroughgoing postmodernist mm. and has a postmodern understanding of what the nature of the truth is and saying, well, you know what? There is no longer, there is no text. There is only the reader. 
and something, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And there's no such thing as truth and accuracy, really, except everything is truthful and accurate, or something like that. I don't know. Some sort of bullshit, anyway. Fill in the gaps yourself. I, I will link below. Um, I was writing a piece on this, and I got to the end of it, and I actually went, this probably works better as an editorial. Because I think there is, there is an important point here, which is that the press council, uh, the press ombudsman, does not seem to have even attempted to do their job. Or if they did do their job, there's no evidence they did it. And maybe that's an issue, considering respectable people say the press ombudsman is important. Gary, there are so many important points that, are, that this flags up. It flags up that if, you, if you're poor and you are defamed, there's fuck all you can do about it. And if you're rich and you're a defamer, you can probably get away with it. And if you want to justify your fair your name, but you don't want to go to law because you can't afford it, well, if you fall on the wrong side of the political blanket, you're not going to get a whole lot of satisfaction out of it. The, 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 in, in a situation where an unreformed laws on defamation, which ironically protect neither the weak and poor, nor, uh, nor uh, does it uh, sufficiently... Uh, allow for freedom of the press at the same time it 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 protects the rich but leaves the poor unprotected and at the same time in that unreformed system the role that should come in and intervene interpose itself between the power of the press and the individual is patently not fit for purpose no so i, I the editorial i think goes into some of those points um, I did cut it down slightly when it moved from a personal article from me to an editorial from the gripped editors because I'd been talking about I talk in it about the use of fascism and far right as delegitimization tactics rather than honest appraisals and I was talking about um, George Orwell's article What is Fascism from 1944 and I just cut that out because I mean in 1944 he's making the point that fascism is being used in that sense so I was arguing, look, this isn't new. We all know this happens. It's very useful for that purpose. It's a good article. You it is. It's very short. Put, put a link up to that because it's, it's worth reading. Yeah, I will do. And the other thing I removed was um, there's the joke about Wolfgang Pauli, the physicist. And Pauli is meant to have been given a piece of work. And his response was meant to have been, it's not just that what you've given me isn't right. It's that it's <laughs> not even wrong. <laughs> and the implication, of course, is that you have produced something so lacking, so unserious, that the question of whether or not you were right or wrong is immaterial. The focus is on how badly you got there. And I think that is of relevance here. It doesn't matter if the IFP is a far-right party or not in this context. What matters is that an entity was willing to simply say, "I'm oh, sure, that's fine. Yeah, call them whatever you want which treats itself as a serious entity and yet just didn't even bother to show the work or do anything. That, I think, is the actual issue, not the actual finding. Which, I mean, you can agree or disagree with the finding. It's not, you, you know what, it's not even a failing of methodology. It's the apparent lack of any methodology at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I got in touch with the IFP. I didn't reach out to the journal because the journal don't respond when I send them things Aww. after the fact-checking thing. I'm not sure they responded to me before that. That was good fun. And I asked Herman uh, Kelly, the president of the IFP, you know, had the ombudsman reached out, had they asked for further information? Because 
all of the parties see the responses. And unless, you know, I didn't get something or Herman didn't get something, the ombudsman made no attempt to question the journal at all, other than asking them would they comment. <laughs> so, like, is this true or accurate? Well, I'm not going to ask them what they meant or how they got to it. I'm just going to say, okay, yeah, sure, that seems fair based on my feelings about this matter, which I'm not going to explain to you. But sure, what can you do? Well, uh, I suppose on that hopeful and upbeat note about uh, Irish democracy and the state of reporting, assuming that the galloping consumption has not taken me from this world to a better place, we'll be back on Friday. And until then, stay indoors and keep warm and wash your hands. All the best.